the good, the bad, and the ugly out of Romans chapter 1. And we get to the second phase of this uh, series, the bad part of Romans chapter 1. So if you would turn there this morning, Romans chapter 1, I'm going to start our reading uh, from verse 14 and we're going to be going through verse 19 this morning. So Romans chapter 1 verses 14 through 19, I would ask that you would stand as we read God's word together this morning. This is what Paul the Apostle says to the church at Rome and to us today. For I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. This is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Our text for the morning. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Bow for a quick word of prayer. Father God, we come before you. And as already has been asked, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, you would open our minds this morning. These are deep waters that we uh, wade in today. These are deep waters that many times we have different perceptions and different thoughts about what you are trying to declare in your word. Father, make it clear to us this morning that we would understand and know who you are and what you're all about. So, Father, we pray for a, a time in your word that will enlighten our hearts and grow us in new and profound ways in all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. When I was in the third grade, I'd gotten a bad report card. And Mrs. Lynn sent home a note to my mom and dad that needed to be signed by my parents. The letters on that uh, report card all started uh, with D's and ended with F's. And I knew that if I went home with that report card, I was going to be in a whole heap of trouble. So what I began to think about was what was I going to do to fix that problem? So like any good pagan child that I was, I said, Mom and Dad don't need to see this note. I will go ahead and sign their names for them. And that's what I did. William Bedal with two M's, not one at the end of his name. <laughs> Michelle with two L's, and my mom only spells it with one. And I remember hearing from my teacher saying, you know what, it would be good for your mom and I to get together, Mrs. Lynn said. Would she be able to come after school today and meet with me? And I said, well, you'll have to call her. She said, I'll do that. I'm going to go ahead and call her. And uh, there was a little parent-teacher conference. I know that's going on these days at school right now. And there was a parent-teacher conference that happened. Mom is there. Mom always walked in with Kleenex in her hand when she went to the school. <laughs> and I was there, and Mrs. Lind, my favorite third-grade teacher, and she said, uh, we've got a problem. She said, either you need to go back to school, Mrs. Bedall, or your penmanship is terrible or your son has forged this letter that you were supposed to receive. My mom only said one, one phrase to me. She turned to me and said, Wait till your father gets home. 
That's all. Nothing more. My mom's few words. Wait till your father gets home. From that point on, my thinking went to two very broad perspectives or two extremes, if you will. I found myself thinking when I got home, what is going to be my father's response? Thinking more of myself than I ought to have, I said, I'm a good boy. My father loves me. I've got a lot to offer my dad. And you know what he'll do? He'll look at me and he'll say, what a son. You, you, you know, your brothers are all right, but you're great. And, and okay, so you got in some trouble. That's all right. We can overlook these things. Don't worry about it. But then the mind that the Lord had given me and what I knew of my father leaned me to another extreme. And the other extreme was very simple. My father was going to come home and he was going to kill me. And so I, I went from one of two extremes. One, that my father was going to overlook this um, offense and just say, you know what, because I love you, let's not worry about it. But then the other extreme was, he was just going to come and end my life. He would say, like he said so many times, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out. I'll make one even better looking than you in the first in the second time around. Okay? When we approach a subject like we're approaching today, the wrath of God, two extremes come out just like in my third grade mind. First of all, people will say, how can you talk about the wrath of God because God is a God of love? And a God of love would never punish people because He loves us so very much. The second perspective that we get, or extreme we get when we talk about the wrath of God, is that we see that there is no love when it comes to God, and God is going to come and He's going to just beat the living daylights out of us. No questions asked, no love, no care, no concern. He is an angry, vengeful God. And I would say that just as I learned on that day when I forged that letter, My father did not come home and he did not say, oh, because I love you so very much, I'll forgive you, I'll I'll forget it, don't worry about it, there's no punishment. He didn't do that, but he didn't kill me either. But there was wrath. He was angry. And there was punishment. And what I hope today, in, in what I would call limited amount of time this morning, is to try to explain to you what I have learned this week about the wrath of God. And I want to move those that are over here that says God's just out there, you know, just with His heavenly hammer beating people down. And, and the ones that say, well, God's a God of love and he'll, he'll, he'll just let everything go idly by. Just like my father, the wrath of God is found somewhere in the middle. There's some things that we need to look at this morning. First of all, we need to understand as we approach this weighty subject, we need to understand first of all, contemporary preachers, contemporary preachers fear of preaching this truth. There's a fear in preaching this truth. I I spent a lot of time studying this this theme this week because it is an important one. It's one that I don't want to uh, mix you up with. I want to give you exactly what the Bible says about it. Ray Pritchard, our friend here, uh, who is an author and pastor, wrote this about this idea of a fear of talking of the wrath of God. He says it's a forgotten doctrine. Even in the evangelical church, I'll dare say that many of you have never heard a sermon on God's wrath. That is, maybe not a full sermon devoted to this one topic. 
The reasons for this apparent neglect are not hard to find. As Christians, we most always want to hear about the love and grace of God. I know I'd rather preach about the grace of God. After all, to speak of the wrath of God makes us to appear to be narrow-minded, judgmental, and God help us to be called a fundamentalist. God's wrath is difficult to comprehend, so in some ways, this is a doctrine that is easy to overlook. Listen to what he says. The thought that nice people that we know might someday go to a place called hell is so overwhelming and so disheartening that we would much rather not think of it at all. This word wrath grabs our attention. We're accustomed in our churches of hearing of the love of God, of the grace of God, of the mercy of God. We want to extol the glory of God, to ponder His holiness. But the wrath of God, he says, we don't even dare mention it. If you look in your hymnals, there are very few hymns devoted to it. Because we would rather sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. But as we're learning today, you can't get through Romans 1 without coming face to face with the truth that God is a God of wrath. We preach the Bible here, one verse at a time, going through it. And there's some great parts of that that I love because you get to read about great parts where God is just pouring out His love and His mercy and His grace. And I love preaching those messages. And though we're sinners, God saves us. And, and though we don't deserve it, He loves us. And those are easy passages to preach. And we had a whole bunch of sermons like that of, of God just being wonderful in the Gospel in verses 1 through 17. But I can't preach Romans 1 without preaching Romans 18, Romans 1.18. So there's a couple reasons why we have to preach a text like this. Because uh, some would say, you know, uh, some may be sitting there in the pew going, Okay, Tim, bad timing. We just dedicated babies. We've got visitors in the house. People may be turned off. Why, why wouldn't you just maybe take a week off from the good, the bad, and the ugly? Here are four reasons why I believe that we cannot do that this morning. Number one, the Bible proclaims it. The Bible proclaims this idea that the wrath of God is a part of the very essence of who He is. In a small book, I'm not going to have you look for it because I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly where it's at within the minor prophets. But the book of Nahum is only a page and a half long. And the book of Nahum, the prophet Nahum says this about the Lord. In, in Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 6, this is what the prophet says. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on His foes and uh, maintains His wrath against His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and dries them up. The mountains quake before Him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at God's presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand His indignation? Who can endure His fierce judgment? For His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are shattered before Him. The reason why we preach these hard texts is because the Bible says we have to. 
If the Bible says something, we in this church have a conviction that we're going to preach it. And we're not going to try to mull it over and try to package it in a way that makes it uh, easy for us to understand. The Bible, uh, the Scripture tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Not just the warm and fuzzy parts, but the difficult parts as well. We have to teach about the wrath of God because the Bible tells us that we need to teach it. Second of all, the wrath of God teaches us our greatest problem. It teaches us about our greatest problem. If you're in the book of Romans, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we are getting a picture of what has transpired for those who have come to know Christ. And at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, we are told about the greatest problem that we have as a, as, a, as a human race. And this is what Paul says about it. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. You know, the biggest problem that we face as humanity is not our marriages. It's not our finances. It's not our children. It's not the school systems. It's not about our boss at work. Folks, our greatest problem that we face as a human race is that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. And as a result of being dead in our trespasses and sin, God, who is holy, cannot look upon sin, cannot involve Himself with sin. So what happens? A holy God pours out His wrath on us, a sinful world. That's our greatest problem. If we take out the wrath of God, then we begin to think that the world centers around us and our needs and our concerns and our likes and dislikes. But we add the wrath of God and God holding us accountable and responsible for our sin, then the, the spotlight goes off of us and it goes on to God. Because God says, I am holy and I demand that you be holy but you can't without the saving work of Christ in your life. It gives us uh, the opportunity to know our greatest problem. Next, it gives us a proper view of God. It gives us a proper view of God. We cannot, please hear me, we cannot look at God by only visiting a couple of His attributes. We can't look at God and say, God is a God of love. That is correct. He is a God of love. But there's other aspects of God. He's a holy God. That is true. He's a kind God. That is true. He's a patient God. True. But He's also a God of judgment. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of wrath. We begin to think many times of God as our celestial grandfather that just loves to see His grandchildren. The greatest phenomenon that I've had as a father has nothing to do with my children. It has to do with my father. My father, a man who was known at times when it came to me in my life to be one who would not uh, spare the rod to spoil the child. Never was spoiled one bit, I can assure you. But what I've learned is, even if I looked at my father funny when I was younger, the wrath was coming. 
my sons go to that same father and go into his house and break everything that is valuable, everything that is worthy of keeping, and they laugh about it to my father. And he said, and I'm ready just to wreak havoc in their lives. And he says, oh, don't touch them. Don't you dare touch them. Who are you to judge? But that's how we view God. That He's a God that will just overlook everything. Oh, don't worry about that, that you trampled my son's death on on the cross of Calvary. Don't worry about that, that you want to worship other gods besides me. Don't. Oh, it's all right. Who am I to judge? Just enjoy yourself. Here's a quarter. Some of you got that. But we think of God as this grandfather. If we take out the, the wrath of God, then we don't have a clear and complete picture of God. That's what scares me about modern evangelical preaching. We talk about marriages. We talk about money. We talk about friendships. We talk about everything else. We talk about God being a God of love and mercy and all that is important and true. But if we don't have all of God, then we're not preaching the whole gospel. Because the wrath of God is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus don't have to die on the cross if there's no wrath. So it's central. The final thing is it not only gives us a proper view of God, but also gives us a passion for the gospel. If you're still in Ephesians, the last part of that, we are by nature objects of God's wrath. If we understand as a body, please hear me this morning, if we understand as a body what it means to be objects of God's wrath, two things are going to become prevalent in our lives. Number one, we are going to rejoice that we are no longer under the wrath of God. We're going to sit there and say, I have been saved by grace, hallelujah, for the cross of Calvary. If I understand wrath. If there's no wrath, then who cares if I got saved or not? It didn't save me from anything. It may have reformed me or fixed me up a little bit, but but I don't have to worry about that. The second thing is, is when we understand and realize that God has an attribute of wrath in in His being, then we're also going to know that when we look at our unbelieving friends, when we look at our unbelieving neighbors, when we look at our unbelieving family members, our spouses that don't believe uh, the Lord, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to sit there and say, well, I hope they maybe get around to it sometime. We know that our Father is one day going to bring this age to an end. And our God in heaven is going to do that. And there is a judgment coming. And if we don't believe in the wrath of God, then who gives a rip about witnessing to anybody? Because it doesn't really matter unless we say God is coming. He's a consuming fire, the book of Hebrews says. And He's going to judge the dead for their wickedness. And as a result of that, there is a place called hell. And it is going to be where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. When we get that understanding of God then we begin to reach out to our friends because it matters, because it means something. Not just, well, join the warm and fuzzy club of Jesus, the Jesus club where everybody loves everybody and nothing bad happens to anyone else. We've got to have an understanding of why we are so afraid of this doctrine. The second thing we need to understand, the second thing is, is that we come to a place in verse 18 where we are to be given a proper understanding of the facts surrounding this truth. Once we understand that we shouldn't be afraid of this this topic, we shouldn't walk away from it and, and shy away from it, 
But try to understand it. We go to the Word and we find out, God, what do you want me to understand about this today? Your prayer this morning should be the wrath of God. I've got some a whole bunch of perceptions in my mind of what that means and how that looks. God, teach me the right way to look at you. Teach me and reveal to me who you really are, not who I hear on the TV, not who I hear uh, at my uh, work with co-workers about who they think God is. Lord, you teach me through your word. So this is what we see happen. Romans 1.18 says the first four words are the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Got to understand, what, what, what are you talking about? Any good reader would ask a couple questions when they come to that. The who, what, why, where, and the how of why that is being put there. What is the reason for the wrath of God? What is that all about? Paul, tell us. First of all, we know that the Bible speaks about the characteristics of this wrath. There are certain characteristics that we must understand if we want to have a proper uh, focus when it comes to this wrath. In the New Testament, there are two Greek words that are used when it speaks of anger or wrath. The first one is the Greek word thumos. Thumos, which is where we get our word thermal or thermonuclear, if you want to have that kind of, uh, uh, kind of thought about it. This is a, uh, anger that is completely uncontrolled. This word thumos is a sudden explosion of anger or wrath. It is momentary, it is emotional, and as I said before, it is uncontrolled. It is an outburst of rage. In fact, in Luke 4.28, this word thumos is used, speaking of the people of Nazareth who wanted to hurt Jesus Christ. They were that angry. They were thumos. They were fired up. They wanted to pour out their rage on Jesus. But that's not the word that Paul uses. Paul doesn't say that God is this God that you look at Him funny and He comes in and He just wails on you. That's a thumos kind of God. That's not what we see in Romans 1.18. Because that's not the word that is used. The word that is used in Romans 1.18 is the word orge. It's used 36 times in the New Testament and it literally means in the Greek to be red-faced. To be red-faced. And what this means is it gives this picture of someone who is holding their anger within them as it's building up more and more. And it implies that a time is coming when the anger will be brought forth. The best way to illustrate this word orge is to think about a dam. To think about a great river, the Hoover Dam, if you want to get a a dam in mind, that is holding back an amazing amount of water. Think of all the power and all the tons of pressure that are put on that dam, but that dam holds it in place. Now think about this for a moment. Think about taking a huge, if you will, a massive sledgehammer and just start beating at that dam. What's going to happen? It's not just going to trickle. It is going to just explode. And the amount of pressure, the amount of weight that has been held for so long will find any place and every place to go. This is this word that Paul uses. This is what he means. Now, what this means, write this somewhere in your outline. Uh, This word wrath in 118 is defined as God's settled opposition. God's settled opposition and displeasure with sin. 
God's settled opposition and displeasure for sin. So let's look at that in the text. For God's settled opposition and displeasure are being revealed. That's what it's talking about. This is not uncontrollable rage, but this is a righteous indignation. This is not God losing His temper and getting all ticked off and and starting to wail on people, but this is God's righteous reason and holy law being violated. And like a good crime uh, enforcement individual, the crime uh, fighter dealing with the crime. So we see the characteristics. Next, we need to understand the consistency of this wrath. Verse 18, it says, okay, now we understand what the wrath of God is. When does it happen? It says it is being revealed. This word revealed is the Greek word apokalupto. Apokalupto. It's used 26 times in the New Testament. And it means to uncover something that has been previously concealed. It's found, write this somewhere in your outline, it's found in the present tense. God's wrath was not just seen in the Old Testament. Remember a couple, uh, probably a month ago, we were watching a drive-up uh, church video where people would drive up and say what kind of church they want, and that young guy gets up and he says, preach from the New Testament. God's happy in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God's just mean. Well, the wrath of God happened in the Old Testament. A lot of wrath happened in the Old Testament. But it doesn't say that the wrath of God was revealed in the Old Testament. Nor does it say that the wrath of God only happened during biblical times. It says it is being revealed. It is continually being revealed. There's a cycle of God's wrath that is unfolding before our eyes. It's not just Old Testament. It's not just New Testament. It's not just during the Reformation and before. It is even happening today. The wrath of God is being revealed today. Well, then, how do, how do we see it? Where, where, where does it come from? What, what are we to do with it? Well, Paul, Paul tells us. In the Scriptures, we're made clear the wrath of God is being revealed. How is it being revealed? We have to look at the categories of God's wrath. The categories of God's wrath. There are a number of ways in which God expresses His wrath. The first one, write these down, they're not in your outline, very quickly, is the eternal wrath. We call the eternal wrath a place called hell, the lake of fire, the place of perdition where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and it results in all who are sent to hell in the weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. That we as Christians call the eternal wrath of God. Secondly, let me give you a scripture that talks about that. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 says... They, speaking of the unbeliever, will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. Hell will be a place that is completely cut off from the presence of Almighty God. And that's what will make it so unbearable. Because everything that's good in God, everything that's wholesome, all that God holds together will become complete chaos which will bring great pain to the person that is there. The second one what we see is what I would call a future wrath uh, for those Bible scholars, an eschatological wrath, a future wrath. Now we know that the Scripture tells us, Jesus says in His Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 that there is going to be a whole lot of pain that's going to come at a certain time in the future. And what's going to happen is a whole lot of people are going to see the wrath of God. 
We see that in the book of Revelation. In verse, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 16, I'm sorry, chapter 6 through 19. We see this wrath. We see it in the unfolding of the seven sealed judgments, the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven rapid fire vile judgments. All of these are going to be poured on the earth at a future time. God says, my wrath is coming. And he's prophesied, he's foretold about these issues. He says, they're going to come. And they're going to happen. And the wrath of God is going to be revealed at that time. But what are some other ones? The third kind is what I would call a uh, cataclysmic wrath. A wrath that comes and that involves nature, it involves uh, God approaching the scene of humanity and, and dealing with a whole group of people with His wrath. The flood in Genesis 6 is a picture of this. Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. The ten plagues of Egypt in Exodus 7 through 11. The drowning of Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea in Exodus 14. The attack uh, on the Israelites by God-given snakes in Numbers 21. God coming and slaying 185,000 Assyrians in 2 Kings 19.35. These are all pictures of God coming in and revealing His wrath in a very clear way. It's clear. God says, I hate sin. I don't like what you're doing. And I'm going to start doing some destroying because I'm angry and you have aroused my anger and I'm going to deal with it. So what are we to think about that? I've got to stop us here because this is where we start going a little haywire. And I'll tell you, this is something that I've been reading. Every book that I can find on the wrath of God to try to formulate the position of where I'm at. But I want to place this position clearly right now. It seems every time that something bad happens in this world, we'll get one of the evangelical leaders who will get up and who will point to, and let's, let's talk about some of them, the tsunami. We talk about 9-11. We talk about Katrina. I even saw this week uh, that someone had a reason for why the Southern California wildfires took place. And someone under the guise of Christianity will come up and they will say, we have suffered this calamity because of the homosexual movement that's going on in America. We have befallen this tragedy because we allow abortions to take place. And now the wrath of God has been revealed. A prominent evangelical leader got up after Katrina and said that Katrina hit the Gulf Shore because New Orleans was a place of utter despair and sin. And we sit there, and, and I know if you're like me, we sit there and say, well, I'm not sure I would say that. That, that sounds a little heavy-handed. And I would say, and I would caution us as a body, be very careful. Who knows the mind of God. We don't understand why these things happen. We don't have an answer. Could they be because of God's wrath? Sure. Sure they could be. But that doesn't mean they are. So be very careful when we start articulating God's wrath on things. The second thing we need to be very careful with is not to, uh, to ask for God to pour out His wrath on someone or something. Be very careful. James and John were, were hanging out with Jesus, and Jesus comes and he says, well, the, the people uh, in this uh, countryside don't, don't want to hear of our message. And James and John say, let's call fire down from heaven and let's destroy them all. And Jesus doesn't say, okay, sounds like a plan. Let me do that for you. It says he rebuked them. Be very careful. 
that we don't become capricious. That's a big word, I know. It's a word of the day. When it comes to God's wrath. God can pour out His wrath however He wants to. But that doesn't give us power of definition to define when it happens. Does that make sense for everyone? Be careful with that. We fall to that and we look dumb, quite frankly. Because we start saying, we know God. We were there when He determined what He was going to do. And I got the inside track. We don't. The, second, the, third, the fourth, uh, moving here, the fourth one that we see is that wrath can come and is being revealed based on the principle of sowing and reaping. Based on the principle of sowing and reaping. Understand that Psalm 711 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses His wrath every day. This isn't something that He takes the weekends off for. He expresses it every day and He does it in judgment. God doesn't pour out His wrath just because He feels like. He wakes up on the wrong side of the bed and says, You know what? I haven't wiped out some humans for a while, so let's go do that. He doesn't do that. He does it based on His righteousness and His judgment. We see that all throughout the Bible. That man or woman have done something that has made God angry and God has taken them out. And I mean that in the mobbish sort of way. He just takes care of them. He deals with it. A couple of them. Exodus 22, 22-24. Listen to what he says. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My wrath will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. That is not children's Bible material. He says, if you do this, I'm coming after you. I'm going to deal with that. I love the orphans. I love the widows. And I hear their cries. And if you start messing around with them, you're going to be dealt with. And it's going to be severely. So how does he begin to do this? Well, remember good old uh, Lot and his wife? And I'm going to do just quick paraphrases on this. Genesis 19, 24 through 26. God says, I'm going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham goes and he says, please don't destroy them, God. There's got to be some righteous people in there. If I can find some righteous people, will you not, uh, will you not destroy them? He says, all right, go find some righteous people. He can't find anybody righteous. And God says, I'm going to destroy it. And God, uh, commands Abraham to tell Lot to get out of town. And he says, get out and don't you dare look back. And they're running and there's a disco inferno happening behind them. And what happens? Lot's wife disobeys God. And she turns back and she turns to the pillar of salt. She dies. Next one we see, and I'll kind of move on these very quickly. A guy named Onan in Genesis 38, 8-10. He's given the job, because his brother dies, to give his sister-in-law a baby. We talked about this in the book of Ruth, the Leverite commitment. This guy, Onan, is given the job to impregnate his sister-in-law. I know that's a little weird, and I don't understand why God did it that way. But again, who am I to tell God what to do, all right? But that doesn't mean now that can happen now, okay? Just understand that. God says no, no on that kind of stuff these days. So Onan kind of starts enjoying this intimacy, if you will, with his sister-in-law and does not impregnate her. And God says Onan did what was evil in the sight of God and Onan died. 
Again, not children's Bible material. Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, they're out and they're hanging out in the temple of God and, and they're going to offer some fire to the Lord. Offering. The Bible says in what book is that? Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them and added incense. But then it says they offered unauthorized fire to the Lord. What happens? God kills them. He makes them briquettes themselves. Why? Why would you do that, God? All they did was offer you some strange smoke. There's all kinds of speculation on what that is. Find some commentaries. I'll tell you, it'll amaze you what commentaries think that strange smoke was. All right? But they're dead. King Nebuchadnezzar, great king of Babylon, walking around. He's this powerful man in the world. And he goes around looking at all his kingdom and he says, Wow. A pretty cool kind of guy. I've done some pretty amazing things. Look at all that is that is here to the glory of King Nebuchadnezzar. God says, all right, King Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're as good as me? For seven years, you're going to become an animal. You're going to eat uh, um, grass like a livestock animal would. You're going to grow claws like an eagle. You're going to grow feathers like a bird. And you're going to walk around on the dew of the ground. And you're going to be an animal. Seven years, the wrath of God was revealed to Nebuchadnezzar because of his pride. How about, uh, we've got a couple more here. The sons of Korah. They disobey Moses. Moses as God's prophetic re- uh, representative. And they say, we're not going to follow you, Moses. We want to follow our own way. So God tells Moses, all right, anybody who wants to be with the sons of Korah, not the band that we had here, by the way. Anybody who wants to go with the sons of Korah? Over here. Anybody who wants to hang with Mo is like the, uh, the, the official game of re- a recess game in a junior high. Everybody wants to be over there, be on the good team, go over there. Everybody on Moses' team, go over there. And the Bible says that the sons of Korah are sitting over here, and then all of a sudden the ground opens up and they all fall into the ground and die. God, why would you do that? That's not very nice. We see time and time again. You say, that's Old Testament where God is mean. King Herod in Acts 12, 21-24, on the day Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne, delivers a public address to the people. They shout, don't ever do this if I talk. This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to, the, to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. He was eaten by worms, and he died. The wrath of God. And of course, who can forget Ananias and Sapphira? They're asked about what they've given to the Lord. They lie. They ask Ananias first. They say, hey, um, now, was this all that you said you were committing to giving? This is not a faith thing, by the way. <laughs> Ananias says, uh-huh. Dead. They say, let's go talk to Sapphira. Sapphira, uh, where's Ananias? Don't worry about Ananias right now. Um, this property that you gave, uh, is it all? Uh-huh. Dead. Now, we ought to ask a question. Why is it that God does that? That's not the right question. Please hear me. The question we should ask is not why does God do these things in the Bible. The better question is why doesn't God do it every day to us? Does that make sense? Why doesn't He do it every day? Tim does all that kind of stuff. Why am I not dead? We do these things. We're sinful people. Why aren't we dead? The consequences that we have because of our sin, I believe with all my heart, are a direct response of God's wrath because of sin. 
you start living a sexual immoral life and you start contracting things that you don't want to contract, I would say that that's not just, oh, sorry, that happened. That is a part of the wrath of God. The Bible says God cannot be mocked. A man sows what to a man what he sows, therefore he will reap. You're not going to like everything that you reap if you're sowing to disobedience. The next thing we see is the final one, the wrath of abandonment. The wrath of abandonment. This is seen later in Romans 1. Turn, if you're in Romans 1, to verses 28 and 29. I believe this is one of the worst kinds of wrath that we can have revealed to us. Romans 1, 28 and 29. Furthermore, the unbelieving world did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So what does God do? Does God smite them down? Does God destroy them right there? No, that's not what it says. It says He gives them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. So they became filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. The worst kind of wrath is where you are living in unrighteousness and you say, God, I want nothing to do with you. It's all about me, God. And God doesn't sit there and say, I'll destroy you. What He says is, all right, go do it. And He abandons you to your own vices. We see that wrath happening. We'll get to that in the ugly part of our series where we trade the natural for the unnatural. Where we begin to be filled with all kinds of things. The Bible says we become insolent, God-haters, disobedient to parents. Why? Because God allows the world. He says, you know what? If you don't want to live by my righteous decrees, fine. Walk away from your only hope. And keep walking to the point that you never see me again. If that's how you want to live, then go that way. That's fine. I'll let you do it. But understand, at the end of that road is not God, but a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The place of abandonment always leads to the eternal wrath of God. Third point this morning. Or I've got one more. My goodness. Verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from where? What does it say? From heaven. This phrase, from heaven, helps us understand a couple things. Number one, this wrath is from God, not from anyone else. Number two, this wrath is in perfect balance to all His other attributes. God is only as wrathful and full of anger as He is full of love. Everything is in perfect balance when it comes to God. Just like His love and His holiness, His mercy, all of them, we need to understand are completely right and pure. God's wrath is right and pure. Don't ever forget that. Understand this, God's wrath is under His direct oversight. God's wrath is not handed over to the devil to do what the devil will have done with it. God oversees His wrath. He doesn't hand it off to anyone else. God's wrath isn't from one sinful person to another. You cannot be the vehicle. You can't go around beating up people saying, I am the vehicle of God's wrath. I'm going to go pour out my wrath upon people. That's why we start some of these wars. We want to be God's fighters in these ways. Think about it this way. Uh, Guy Ferrelli and Bruce Wyrock, if they, uh, because of being Ohio State fans, felt that it was their job to strike dead every person from Illinois who roots for the Illini, some of you know why I'm talking about this, that's not their place. And we already know God is an Illinois fan anyway. Okay? 
It's not our place. So this course, it comes from heaven and it comes to man. Very quick illustration. My dad used a belt in spanking me called DCFS and pick my dad up if that's politically incorrect for you. In the Assyrian language, which I was brought up with, that was what we called the tesma. So when things went bad for the three boys, we would please, no tesma, no tesma, no tesma, because that was the only language at that point my father understood. Because when my dad got angry, it was half English, half Assyrian, and, and pig Latin in the middle there. And he would forget your name. The farther he forgot your name, the more trouble you were in. You were in some trouble if he remembered your name as your brother, it got even worse when he just started calling you random names. My dad had a belt. That was the only way my father would spank us. The only way. He didn't do it any other way. Why? Because he wanted us to know that there was a course of how the discipline, and if you will, his wrath, would take place. I will tell you, because of that, my father is not a skinny man. He wouldn't be upset if I said that because I've taken on some of his own genes. And when he would go like this at a dinner, the three boys were running. If he loosened that belt, that tesma started moving in any way, we were booking. It didn't matter who did it, what happened. Because it was the course of which my dad did things. But you know what? One time I was goofing around and I wanted to show my brother the tesma and pretend to be my father. And I will tell you, the wrath came. Because that picture of my father's wrath was his and his alone. This is God's, no one else's. Third point, finally this morning. The primary focus of God's wrath. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It is against. What does that mean? The phrase is epipos, which means upon all. It is upon all. A picture of giving that God's fury is coming down upon the heads of the ungodly. Do any ungodly escape the wrath of God? The answer is no, they do not. God's wrath is universal. It's being discharged against all who deserve it. No amount of goodwill, no giving to the poor, no helpless or helpfulness to others, no service to God will exclude a person that God has determined in His righteous decree to be a part of that wrath. Obviously, we have some that are better than others, people that are better than others, but even the most moral, the most moral and upright person falls short of the glory of God and incurs the wrath of God. So no one escapes. Why? Very quickly, three reasons. Ungodliness, the Greek word uh, asabia. Asabia literally means without worship. The reason why God's wrath has come is we don't worship God. The fallen world does not worship God. We're going to get into that later, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in it this morning. But one of the reasons that God reveals His wrath is because we fail to revere Him as God. And God says, you don't do that, my wrath is coming. The second thing we see is an unright in unrighteousness. Man is being revealed the wrath of God because of our unrighteousness. What it literally means is, is ungodliness, or in the NIV I believe it's godlessness, has to do with our relationship with God. It's wrong. Our relationship with God in the fallen world is wrong. And what that leads to is a wrong relationship with one another. Understand this. 
You have a wrong relationship with God, there's a good chance you're going to have a wrong relationship with other people. Why is there murdering and raping and fighting and wars and, and all these things happening and stealing and all that? Is because the fallen world does not have a right relationship with God. They do not revere God. And because of that, they hurt the people around them. That's the reason for the sin. If you wanted to know the million dollar question, it's because we don't revere God. So that's why we have the 10 o'clock news. To tell us all the ways that that reverence, that lack of reverence for God, is being fleshed out to humanity. The final thing that we see is that it involves unrighteousness and it also involves unwillingness. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who do what? They suppress the truth by their wickedness. Paul says they suppress the truth. This word is kata echo in the Greek. And what it literally means, and I'm over here because I can do this with Phil Chapman, it means literally you do this to truth. It literally means, I hope that's a picture. Please pray for Phil's hip. What that means is I am going to hold down. Kata, down, echo, hold. Hold down the truth. It literally means the unbelieving world takes the truth of God. What the truth is is not the gospel in this part of the text. What it's talking about is the knowledge of God, the reverence of God. What do we do in our fallen state? We sit on that and we say, you're not going to get that out. Don't you think you're going to even go anywhere with that? I'm going to suppress it in any way that I can. And the fallen world says, no truth. I will not be a part of it. Get it out of here. We suppress the truth because of our unrighteousness and godlessness. What's the application this morning? Point number four. There's a perfect formula for turning away the wrath of God. You don't like the first part of the message? There's good news. Romans 1, 1 through 17. Why does God reveal His wrath? So that we understand the gospel. Because if we don't have the wrath of God, we don't need the gospel. So what does it involve? First of all, examining your life. Are you by nature at this point an object of God's wrath? If you are, then do something about it. Don't stand under that, um, that uh, wrath of God. But the only way we can fix the wrath of God is found in the later part of Romans, Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die. Someone may possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we don't read the next verse. Since we have now been justified by Christ's blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through Him? How do you get out of the wrath of God? You bow your knee this morning to the name of Jesus Christ. And you say, God, I am unrighteous. God, You are holy. Because of that, I deserve, God, every amount of wrath that You pour on me. And I see that today as clear as day. And I bow the knee and say, without Your righteousness, I'm an object of Your wrath. So I give my life over to You. That is the only way you will get out of the wrath of God. That's it. 
If you walk out of here and you say, I'm not going to do it, and you continue to live your life that way, I promise you one thing, and it's not politically correct. You will spend eternity in hell where God will pour out His wrath upon you. That may be harsh. That may be Bible-banging. You can call it whatever you want. It's the truth. It is the truth. And I implore anyone here today who does not want to be a part of the wrath of God to bow your knee and say thanks be to God for His indescribable gift of Jesus Christ who takes away His wrath when I am found in Him. The second thing is make every effort to know God. Don't just use God as your fire insurance. But the Bible says we suppress the truth in our sin. That means if that's what sinners do, then the believer should examine themselves and say, I want to know as much about God as I can. And this is not just a book knowledge, but it is an experiential knowledge as well. That I understand who God is, what He's all about. I understand the Bible says time and time again, but grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus. Keep growing in that. Keep growing in that. Don't stop. Why? Because the only other alternative we have is to suppress the truth. And if we call ourselves believers, then it's time to start knowing God and making Him known. The final thing is is to make uh, your life an evidence of God's grace. Of God's grace. We live in a place where God's wrath is being revealed. And let God reveal His wrath. And don't question that wrath. And know that God has got a plan for that wrath. Our job is not to sit there and point our fingers and say, Ha, 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 see, I told you, you should have listened. I don't think that's what Noah was doing in the ark. Ha, 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 I told you, you made fun of me about building this ark in my backyard. Now look who's laughing. I don't think that's what God or what Noah was doing. I think what Noah was doing was he was broken hearted. But not only was he broken hearted about what he had seen, But I believe that he understood that he was a person under grace. And he understood that. And he lived out of it. So what I say to you as a church, let God deal with his wrath. It's his job. Remember, it's his tesma. It's his belt. Let him do with it what he will. What is our job? But we are a royal priesthood. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God so that we might pour out the wrath of God on others. No, that we might declare the praises of Him who called us out of the wrath of God and brought us into His wonderful light. I hope this made sense today. We've gone a little long. We are going to sing our last song because we need to worship God after a message like this and thank God corporately. So let's pray. Worship team, come on up as I pray. Father God, what an incredible truth this morning. What a truth that we desire nothing more than to push away and to say, no, God, that's not who you are. But the word says, which is perfect, that this is who you are in balance with all other character and attributes. So Lord, we praise you this morning for your wrath. Though it hurts, and though it brings all kinds of questions into our mind, we praise you because you are living out who you are in your being. And for that, you should be glorified. And Lord, we don't want to get in the way of your wrath, and we don't understand the full manifestations of your wrath in this present day, but we know what your word says, and your word is true. So Lord, what is our job? It is to bow the knee in the light of that wrath and turn to Jesus in repentance. 
Father, for the one who is there, who maybe heart is broken right now, fearful of that coming wrath. Father, I pray they wouldn't leave this room under the uh, still being a by nature an object of your wrath. That Lord, every person that will walk out of here will not be an object of your wrath, but an object of your love and affection and forgiveness. So Lord, let no one leave this place until they've heard more about your gospel and how they can flee from that wrath and be saved. For those that are now saved, Father, that we would be objects of not only your grace, but we would be evidence of that grace in a fallen world. Father, we love you. We adore you for this truth. And we give you glory now as we sing. And all God's people said, Amen.